My name's Elika Burma and I'm the Professor of World Literature and English here in the English Faculty in the University of Oxford. I have worked extensively across the past 20 years or so on both colonial and post-colonial literature in English and some in French and Dutch and currently I'm finishing up a big book that's taken me quite a few years on Indian travellers to the UK in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and I'm looking at their writings, their memoirs and the ways in which they see England as exotic. Fantastic. Now, I know that you wrote a biography on Nelson Mandela. With the recent news of his illness, has this refueled a desire to revisit your work on him? It has indeed, partly through pressure of circumstance. I wrote the short biography of Nelson Mandela, which in part addresses his legacy, some five years ago, around the time that he turned 90, and he's recently turned 95. And what with his illness, there has been a lot of attention focused, not only obviously on him, but also on his legacy and you know what it means when this great era if you like of Nelson Mandela passes from us what has he bequeathed to the future in terms of humanitarian understanding in fact I've been invited to to write a couple of obituaries about him and that has led me to look again at that legacy and to revisit it and also to consider some of his not only his great heroism, which is undoubted and which I've written about, but also perhaps some of his flaws, his, his very human but nonetheless very tangible flaws, which I could expand on. But yes, certainly it, it's been very interesting to revisit the question of what he's bequeathed to the 21st century. Do you think post-colonial literature, like feminist literature, is often misunderstood? Yes, I do think it's often misunderstood, not least because folks, if you like, the man or the woman in the street, is probably at first sight confused by the word post-colonial. Some might ask, when did colonialism end? You know, if we are after colonialism, post-colonial, when did it end? Is post-colonial literature always, in a way, an appendage of colonial literature, as again, the post seems to imply? It is, even as a term, quite confusing term. It's also, I think, a term that is misunderstood even by the writers that critics and teachers call post-colonial, because a lot of these writers will be from now, you know, fully independent nations, confident nations, you know, part of the, the world community, Indian writers, for example, or Nigerian writers, who may rightly query whether they are always to be saddled with this label of coming after the British Empire post-colonial. So for that reason, I think the term is also not so much misunderstood, but even possibly misread even by the writers to which the label is applied. So in light of what you've said, what do you think is important when we classify an author as post-colonial? In a nutshell, I like to define the post-colonial, and I've done this in my work, as literature that in some or other way, whether overtly or oblique, questions the experience of empire. And not only the experience of, if you like, 
being ruled by Britain or being ruled by France or having your land taken over by a foreign power, but also the, the more subtle question of how do you write with a borrowed pen, given that a lot of the writers that we call post-colonial are writing in English, but that English is not necessarily their mother tongue because of colonialism. So there are some really great post-colonial writers like Chinua Chebe, Salman Rushdie, V.S. Naipaul, Nadine Gordimer, J.M. Kutsi, all of whom in their very, very different ways have asked about the quality and the quantity of the master's tongue of English that they are required to use in order to express themselves. So it's that inner conflict, that split belonging to different kinds of literary and cultural heritage that makes an author post-colonial and that is so interesting about the post-colonial condition. That, that's the conflict that has kept me very interested, has kept me writing now for over two decades about this kind of material. So to prospective uh, undergraduate students, what would you say in response to the question, why should we study post-colonial writers? I would say, okay, there, there are a number of different responses that one could give to the question, why study post-colonial writers? One, in short, is because post-colonial writers in English represent the future. It's not for nothing that the name of the English literature degree at Oxford University was changed from a BA in English literature to a BA in literatures in English. It's precisely to embrace and to take account of the fact that fantastic writing in English is being produced all around the world, New Zealand, the Pacific Islands, India, Mauritius, etc. So post-colonial writing represents the future. But I think what post-colonial writing also interestingly does is that it casts new light on partly political light, but also a very interesting structural light on the legacy of English literature, the legacy of the canon of Chaucer and Wordsworth and Dickens that has been handed down to us today because it was those writers who, in the time of empire, were used to educate the natives in what civilization meant. An English literary education was intended to civilize. And in some sense, um, that project went horribly awry from the point of view, if you, if you like, the colonizer. But it also went creatively and wonderfully awry from a post-colonial point of view, because that civilizing education in English literature was taken over by these new writers, these post-colonial writers, and was kind of embraced and made their own. And through Dickens, channeling Dickens or channeling Wordsworth, they discovered and developed their own literary voice. So I think what the study of post-colonial writing does is that it infinitely expands our sense of the incredible richness and capacity of the English literary tradition. In terms of writers such as Kipling, where does he fit in? Would you consider him a post-colonial writer? The question of Rudyard Kipling's relationship to post-colonial literature is a very, very interesting one. Kipling, having been called, for very good reason, the bard of empire, 
certainly he was the poet of the Raj. It would be very difficult to style Kipling as, strictly speaking, post-colonial because he doesn't have an interrogative, a questioning relationship in relation to the empire. He kind of he thought it as a, a pretty good thing if done well. But what is fascinating about Kipling, and he's he's such a very very complex and multifaceted writer is that he's one of the first writers in English of India to write imaginatively absolutely from inside India which is why well-known Indian writer writing today Salman Rushdie for example or Amitav Ghosh also very well known always write kind of in some sort of interesting relationship or dialogue with Kipling Kipling's vision of India has been in some sense taken on by them but also revised so there is if you like a post-colonial Kipling by virtue of the fact that these Indian writers of the present day have used him in order to articulate something about India today that is, you know, revealing and and interesting. So what new perspectives can post-colonial work bring to literature? I think post-colonial literature almost by definition brings new perspectives to, if you like, more conventional understandings of literature. If we think of literature as an assemblage, for example, of genres, post-colonial literature immediately kind of opens up what we understand by the lyric poem or what we understand by the novel, because what these writers do, what these post-colonial writers do, is bring their own vernacular traditions, say from Persian poetry or from Creole Calypso, in the case of Derek Walcott, they bring these infusions from their own traditions and they hybridize them, kind of cross-cut them with English literary traditions and create something that is sort of amazing and completely new, so really they kind of stretch and expand the boundaries of what we understand literature to be. Now you've studied a whole repertoire of post-colonial writers. Is there any particular works or writers that you find most compelling? Well, as as you can probably tell, I'm a I'm a very enthusiastic <laughs> <laughs> supporter, fan of this kind of work, and it's very difficult because we are dealing with such a massive diversity of world writers to pick just a few favourites. So the writer I'm going to mention, I'm going to mention because he's been in the news, having sadly died in 2013, the year in which we're we're talking, and that is uh, Chinua Achebe, who's often called the father of African literature. Because because his great novel, Things Fall Apart, which was published in 1958, over 50 years ago, kind of completely changed the shape of what we understood African writing to be, but also the English novel. He takes the novel form and he kind of deforms it and changes it in all sorts of interesting ways. He literally caused things to fall apart and then he put them back together. He also wrote several other fascinating novels. He wrote memoirs. He wrote short stories stories and he's never been out of print and things fall apart has sold millions and millions of copies in Nigeria it's a, it's a kind of standard text like you know great expectations is in the UK sense so Achebe is a world changing writer absolutely fantastic and he's one of the names that I would put forward would you recommend to students who are seen to start their interest in literature and potentially study post-colonial literature that this text would be a gateway into that and 
Yes, form. yes, yes, certainly, yes. In fact, I, I was recently working with a sixth former who was interested in going further and studying English, and this student was very interested in Conrad and in Kipling. And I then recommended that they had a look at Things Fall Apart, especially at the ending, because there's a very, very tricksy ending to Things Fall Apart. It kind of spins the whole colonial literary tradition around kind of turns it on its head. So I recommended that the student have a look. You know, he was fascinated. And he could see the very complex and subtle ways in which Achebe was talking back to Joseph Conrad. And in a sense also to Kipling. You know, was saying, actually, look, you know, Africans were not inarticulate, you know, mask-like presences. They were actually sort of full human beings with sorrows and joys like the Europeans in Conrad. So that definitely worked in the case of that student. Student. Things fall apart. It can be because the names are very unfamiliar, they, they're Igbo, they're Nigerian. It can just initially be a little sort of alienating because it is such a different culture that you're being invited into. But I would say to any new reader of Achebe, just give it a go. You know, spend an hour, dwell a bit. So some of these writers, because of their unfamiliarity, you know, they aren't speaking from, if you like, the heart of Victorian London, which is in a way much more familiar to us. They're speaking from, say, an island in the Pacific or a village in the you know, Nigerian Delta area. You need to give it just a little bit more time. It's like meeting somebody from a very different culture. You just have to spend a little bit of time getting used to a different accent, a different perspective. But once you've got used to it, then it's amazing.